0: Um, What I'd like to speak about this evening is the subject of equanimity, which is one of those one-word dharma talks. Again, it's the same as authenticity, kind of one has a certain experience, I think, just by hearing the word. I should begin by letting you know that um, equanimous, if I happen to use that word, actually is a real word. Someone recently asked me if it is a real word. I know it sounds like hippopotamus or something. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's in the dictionary. So <laughs> so what equanimity is, is a balance of mind, a balance of heart. It's as dynamic a quality as metta is when we fully understand it. It's being still and steady in the midst of the enormous variety of changes that are possible for human beings. Equanimity is is actually an application uh, to some degree of non-reactivity when we meet with the various circumstances of life, seeing if we can call upon that which is within us, which is this capacity, this ability to be non-reactive. We have to remember. But if we remember, we can call upon our capacity to be non-reactive, unwavering. To some degree, with equanimity, we're learning how to not take sides with either greed or aversion, which is what our tendency is, is either to side with clinging, with trying to hold on to something, or to side with those voices of aversion, of trying to push something away. We're trying to not get fixated or locked into anything at all. So there's a softness, there's a fluidity within, a pliability, you could say, of heart. where We're not pulled around by the inner states of mind. We're not oppressed by the inner states of mind. And we're not pushed around by the outer circumstances that all human beings face at some point or another. So in this working with equanimity we're trying to not take sides with the various voices within a person named bankai said don't side with yourself now when you say this you know it's really important not to side with others against yourself this is not what he meant (laughs) and not to side with others either and at the same time to notice how we're taking sides with ourselves, even though our self is saying a million different things at once. Usually, you know, usually arguing different sides of things, and so we take side with one voice, we take side with another voice, and then we kind of wonder why we're in conflict. So, not taking sides with ourselves mean it means seeing if we cannot side anywhere. In other words, have an openness of heart in the present moment. Have an openness of heart, of mind so that we're not stuck or attached to any particular opinion, to any particular view of things. It's so easy to get locked into our reactions and not even know how we got there. One can often see that in families, there are fights that have been going on for generations. And sometimes, no one, people don't even know how it originally began. People are just still upset or angry with one another, not talking to one another, and the original disagreement sometimes is really obscured. In my family I had two cousins that weren't talking to each other for probably a good 15-20 years, a long time, and at the end of the 15-20 years what broke through it is that one of my cousins got locked out of her car, the one that wasn't talking to the other one got locked out of her car, and My other cousin, the cousin who wasn't being talked to, um, is a volunteer fireman. So she called (laughs) to get somebody to unlock her car, and her brother came. So she needed him, and then dialogue began, began at that point. You know, she felt some gratitude, some appreciation, so they began a dialogue. But what was so interesting about it is that these past 15 years, she thought he knew what she was upset about, and no one knew, no one in the family, other than her, knew what she was upset about, was really so interesting to to see. Equanimity allows for the sustaining in our life, in our heart, of metta and of compassion. You know, it allows us to be able to continue to open, continue to sense an inner warmth extended towards ourselves and extended towards others without the attachment to their having to be a particular result in order for us to continue to feel metta, in order for us to continue to feel compassion towards whatever it is that's happening. Equanimity is a letting go. You could say it's a letting go of control. In letting go, the heart is able to stay open. The heart is not clinging there's a strength of heart that can be experienced and known. And this is applied to, you know, to others, certainly, but very much to our own inner states of mind. You know, To be able to sustain metta and compassion towards our own states of mind. Sometimes it's quite hard. And so to allow for equanimity, to remember non-reactivity, allows us to, con- to be able to continue to be friendly towards ourselves, whatever it is that's occurring. We're moving very much in practice from the effort to control our experience, the effort to control everything, the effort to control others, the effort to control what is arising within. We're shifting from this effort to control to the effort to meet our experience exactly as it is. So it's really a very significant shift. And every time we notice that there's this effort to control, if we're aware of it, no problem, because then we can immediately let go of control and notice what's happening, see if we're able to welcome, meet, open to whatever it is that's happening. Control is very much a habit, and so it's something that we have to work quite gently with, not condemning ourselves for this habit of controlling. Uh, It's come about for quite sane reasons most of the time. But to notice that it doesn't work, uh, to notice that it doesn't work, and to see if we can shift, make the shift moment after moment after moment. Sometimes we have to do it every moment for a while, You know, in a particular sitting or in a particular walking, or in our life for a particular amount of time. We have to stay kind of really on top of it um, to notice how easy it is to try to control our experience and then see if we can shift into welcoming, meeting, opening our experience with non-reactivity. We can get very involved in this struggle to control. And again, we need to shift into the willingness to connect with our experience. This is the big shift in practice. Again, letting go of control and being willing to connect with our experience exactly as it is. Equanimity offers us a sense of patience and a sense of humility in life and our practice. Without equanimity, it's really easy to give up um, out of resignation or bitterness, you know, to, um, to be trying to allow for change to happen and to just kind of throw our hands up in the air and, and give up because it hasn't worked out the way we've wanted it too. And humility is the tendency to get carried away by everything that's happening in our life, and particularly in terms of our reactions to life, to really get carried away by the strong emotions that can easily be there. About 20 years ago, I was living in a household in Cambridge. Um, it, was a, it was a group home, and um, devotees of Rajneesh were living on the bottom floor, and devotees of Yogi Bhajan were living on the top floor. <laughs> it was an interesting house. <laughs> and we would meet on the stairs in between and <laughs> whatever. But it was the kind of household where you, you never knew who was going to be there when you got home, you know, at night. There could be this person, there, maybe somebody that you had been there for a long time would be missing. You'd say, where were they? Oh, they went away for three months. You know, they wrote you a note. You just never knew what was going to happen, um, which I kind of, you know, I kind of liked in a sense of just always coming home and who was going to be there, kind of thing. But anyway, I had a roommate who had a, a gigantic heart, a really huge heart, and she couldn't help herself. She'd walk down the street in Cambridge and she'd see somebody who was suffering, who needed help, and she'd invite them home. And sometimes there would be a lot of people at home, you know, a lot of people that. She had walked down the street meeting, and they were all there at once. And although her heart was really big, um, as she herself would say, there really wasn't a whole lot of equanimity, because having all these people in the house at one time, um, you know who who were oftentimes having a lot of inner difficulty, she would at some point she'd be great for a while, and then at some point she'd start, you know yelling and (laughs) saying, get out, you have to leave now after, you know, inviting them in for the next year without having talked to any of her roommates, that kind of thing. So, you know, it was great because the intention was really beautiful. The intention was this natural responding to suffering and seeing what she could do about it. But because there wasn't enough equanimity, there wasn't enough um, kind of, you could say, uh, uh, clarity of mind, to either make a different choice or to be able to sustain the meta and the compassion, at some point it would always break down. Of course, there was somebody new the next day, so that would happen too. But it was so interesting to see these two qualities of mind um, kind of out of balance in a sense. With equanimity, we're able to learn from our experiences in life. Our, our tendency, our human tendency, of course, is to be broken by very difficult experiences in life, to find ourselves lost and in despair. And non-reactivity of mind, um, an openness of heart, really allows us to be able to learn a little bit more from whatever experiences we're having. It allows us to have the strength to be present without withdrawing, without withdrawing basically into bitterness or into resentment. It allows us to come to our experiences, whatever our experiences are, with a little bit more understanding. So our aim is to understand, not just to survive or live through, seeing if we can convert our experiences into possibilities for understanding life more deeply. There's a very poignant story. This, this happened in the time of the Buddha. It's called the Mustard Seed Story. There was a woman who had experienced an enormous amount of loss and trauma in her life. And the last straw came when her son died. And she just, her mind really broke because she couldn't stand the grief after, especially, maybe anyway, but especially after so much, so much trauma that she'd experienced. So, she was going around the village that she lived in with the body of her dead son in her arms, hoping that somebody could cure him, hoping that somebody could wake this, this son up, this boy up. She didn't know what to do, and her mind was just not there anymore. So she went from around and around and around, and finally someone in the village took pity on her, had some sense of compassion, and said to her, "Um, I can't help you, but maybe the Buddha can help you. The Buddha Mm -hmm. was in the next village over. Maybe you can receive help from this very wise man. So she was desperate and willing to do anything, so she went to talk to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, yes, I can help you. I can help you with your son. But what you need to do first is to go back into the village and try to bring me back a mustard seed from a house in which there has not been any death. Just one mustard seed, but it has to be from a house that has not experienced death. So she was thrilled. She was happy. She was thinking this will be a really easy thing to do, and then things will be set right again. You know, this nightmare will go away, and things will be set right. So she went into the village, And she stopped at the first house that she saw, and a nice guy answered the door. And she said, could I please have a mustard seed? And the man said, sure, I have a mustard seed, no problem. And he started to turn, and as he was turning, she said to him, ah, but there's one thing. Has anyone died in this house? And the man said, yes, my mother died six years ago. And she said, "Okay, well, I can't get the mustard seed from you. Thank you so much. I need to move on. So she went to the next house, right next to that house, asking the very same question, can I have a a mustard seed? And, as well, has anyone died in this house? And same answer, yes, I can give you a mustard seed. And yes, someone has died in this house. And she moved on to the next house. 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 As she was nearing the last house in which it was possible to get a mustard seed from, this real strong realization hit her. She realized that um, every house was a house in which someone had died. And she felt her heart open. She felt a sense of connectedness instead of isolation and alienation, and as if this were happening to her alone, she felt the humanity the suffering that all beings experience she felt the sense of being bound together by the very same elements so she went back to the buddha and she said you know can't find a mustard seed from a house in which there has not been a death and and at the same time told him of her new realization and the buddha of course said you know this is how things are and listen, respond to this sense of connectedness, this sense of shared humanity. Because, of course, what drives us crazy is a sense of isolation, a sense of being alone, alone with our pain, alone with our sorrow, with our guilt, with our suffering, with our difficulties. And so just for this woman, and and we can just do the same thing here and now, that recognition that we're in this together the recognition that not one of us has been chosen out in any particular way and that we all share the same elements, the same common elements of being human. And this is how we can move out of the natural sense of resignation or resentment or bitterness that can occur when we're faced with really difficult things. But to see as well that there's another step, to not deny, to not push away the natural human feelings that are there and at the same time to see, is it possible to take another step? And this other step is what the Dharma offers us. The Dharma does offer us another step, a step so that we don't have to be endlessly lost in bitterness, in disappointment, in frustration, in whatever mental agitation is there. Equanimity offers us the biggest perspective possible in order for there to be an equanimous mind, an equanimity of heart. We do need to, over and over again, remember the vastness of things. Not take the narrow way, not take the tight or contracted way, but instead see if we can appreciate and open to the enormous vastness of life. A way to understand this vastness, one way to develop equanimity, has to do with a very kind of mundane understanding of karma. It's not that we have to understand all the, um, all the intricacies of karma, but really just to understand it in a quite basic way can help enormously when we find ourselves lost and caught and reactive. A basic definition of karma being that there are consequences to actions. (coughs) Karma is known as the light of the world because it clarifies the path. It helps us to see where we're going more clearly. It guides us if we know that there are consequences to actions. It's important, whenever karma is mentioned, I think, because it's so little understood, um, to just be so clear about the fact that it has nothing to do with punishment. It has nothing to do with others being punished. It has nothing to do with oneself being punished for past actions. Uh, We we know the Buddha to have been the most compassionate person possible, and there's no way that the Buddha's message is a message of self-condemnation, of punishment, of self-judgment, of judging others. The Buddha's message is a message of compassion, of freedom from suffering, not of locking in suffering. So it has to be held in a very big way. I think it's also important to recognize that um, it's not possible to fully understand karma. Um, The Buddha called it one of the unthinkables. And we're talking about letting go of thought and not thinking so much. But this one is a really, really good one to totally let go of since it's actually termed an unthinkable. Um, and the Buddha said actually that the mind would burst if you thought about it too much. <laughs> Talk about consequences to actions. If you think about karma too much, your mind will burst. So <laughs> I think it's best just to kind of have a, you know, a very, very kind of mundane, easy, uh, relationship or understanding to karma. In in terms of it not being uh, punishment or self-condemnation or self-blame, it's the understanding that we've all done everything. We've all done everything. This is if one has a past lifetime perspective, which you can kind of take or leave, but in terms of this conversation, it's a little bit easier to at least consider it as a possibility um but understanding that we've all done the most wonderful noble noble of things and you know perhaps that's why we're getting to hear the dharma now and practice a path that is allowing us to move into freedom and we've all done you know absolutely the most horrible of things too and this is something that we share with one another and to recognize this helps to take it off ourselves or others in any kind of punitive way and i think this is really really important It's not that things are as they should be, it's that things are as they are. And I think this is important in the recognition of karma or the understanding of karma. It's not that things are the way they should be. It's not that anyone should suffer or should be caught in horrible situations or difficult emotions or anything like that. It's just that they are as they are. And so can we relate to things as they are in a radically different way? practice action is meant to be both action action meaning physical action it also means speech and it also means thought so when the word karma is used it doesn't just mean actions it also includes things that we say and things that we think it doesn't include thoughts that arise Um, spontaneously on their own that are seen and let go of. What brings karma is the nourishing of thinking. So thought just arises, if we're mindful of it, if we let it go, no problem. If there is a nourishing, then that's where we get into trouble. In other words, we have a thought of anger. We see it, we let it go. Or we have a thought of anger we move into thoughts of revenge for the next 15 minutes or the next 10 years or you know however long it might be. This is what is meant by consequence, that the consequence, of course, of nurturing thoughts of revenge is going to be difficulty. It's going to be suffering. It's going to be agitation. It's going to be all sorts of things. And so to recognize this. But thoughts arising spontaneously on their own, this is, this is out of our control. So where it's it's really important though in terms of this reflection on equanimity and this reflection on karma is the recognition that all thoughts, all feelings, all sensations on the in the body are karmic. And so everything arising is our past coming up to meet us, which can be an enormously comforting thought because over and over again we're just simply meeting ourselves. We're not meeting anyone new, we're not meeting a stranger we're meeting what we have experienced in the past and have not known to let go of yeah out of ignorance out of ignorance not out of horrible things but out of ignorance we have not known the way to peace the way to happiness the way to joy so knowing now in this moment we can begin a new life and in this new life in recognizing the thought that arises, the feeling that arises, the emotion that arises, the sensation arises, is all karmic, we can begin to relate to it in a different way. And this is what allows karma to die away. This is what allows for the possibility of deep and lasting freedom and what allows for the ebbing away, the burning away, you could say, of the fire of karma. So when there is equanimity in the moment when we're greeting a thought without clinging or aversion, or, you know, when there is aversion or clinging to a thought or to an emotion or to a feeling, but we know it when we're mindful, then it's not a problem. Then we're just continuing the practice of moving towards freedom. It's only when we stop and deliberately nourish thoughts that are thoughts of suffering, emotions that are suffering emotions, that which leads to misery, that which leads to difficulty, that we create new karma. So the the possibility in each moment is really phenomenal. We can start right now, relating to our past in a totally new and fresh and different way, whatever our past has been. And this this is the great news, the great possibility in practice, is to be with our experience with love and compassion and equanimity, so that we're allowing the inner fires to burn themselves out on their own. When there is deliberately the adding of aversion, it's kind of like a seed is planted for aversion to occur in a moment in the future. Whereas if something is happening and there is aversion, but we know there's aversion, we're mindful of aversion, then we're planting a seed of freedom that will arise in the future. We're planting like a happiness seed or a joyful seed. And it is that lawful. It's not, not lawful. It is all noticing how nature works and allowing ourselves to act within nature rather than trying to make up our own laws about nature. So what we're interested in in terms of developing equanimity and relating to things in a different way, is focusing um, not so much on the, on the what, but in the how. In other words, not so much being overly focused on the content of our experience, because all of us experience greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, so, so this is a given. This is not, not something new and um, just happening with one or two people. It's, it's our shared humanity. So, it's not what that's important, it's the how we are relating to it that's so important. And we can recognize that in how we are relating to it, we're not responsible for the results. We are responsible for our efforts, for our efforts to be wise, compassionate, skillful, determined, enduring. But the results, how they come about, is really not up to us. This is where we really have to allow for the equanimity of letting go. As things come about in their own time, the path evolves in its own way, and we can't push it, and we can't force it anymore that we can force a flower to grow more quickly, force a tree to flower more quickly. So resting in the peace of this, that in the moment, if we can extend the effort to be mindful, to turn over and over again towards the present moment, not to push, not to strive, not to try to make something happen, But right now, in the here and now, to recognize if we turn towards this moment, our whole life is changing. And in each moment that we're willing to turn towards what's happening instead of being lost in the content, seeing if we can relate to what's happening in a wise and skillful way, which simply just means knowing, acknowledging that it's happening, accepting that it's happening, and then beginning to investigate its true nature its nature of temporariness, its nature of substancelessness, that it's not as solid as it seems to be, then our life changes. This is how the transformation process actually occurs. Awareness of our reactions from moment to moment cuts our karma, burns our karma out. So when difficult emotions are happening, The whole thing is how do we hold it? How can we relate to it? One of my teachers in Thailand, uh, Tan Panya, used to say um, when difficult emotions were occurring, um, to try to be a good sport. (laughs) I really like that. You know, you don't have any other options. Here here they are. Um, You know, it's just the past coming up to meet you. Can you just kind of try to be a good sport about it? And it it always made me feel kind of cheerful and, oh, yeah, I can do that. (laughs) I can be a good sport. (laughs) So I pass that on to you when you're stuck in something. Mm. 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 This um, particular perspective allows us to begin to stop fighting, to begin to stop pushing against nature to begin to stop trying to impose the way we want things to be on top of the way things actually are. We can learn to work more skillfully with the circumstances in life. The Buddha spoke about eight different conditions that all human beings are subject to. And these eight conditions include praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, and fame and disrepute. And the thing about these eight conditions, worldly conditions, is that everybody experiences all of them at some point or another. Nobody is exempt. We always will be subject to these conditions. The Buddha was subject to all these conditions. The only difference between us and and him is that he didn't care. No other difference. But you know, certainly, certainly subject to being disapproved of. You know, very strongly, if you read the sutras, the discourses, he was being disapproved of all the time. Um, certainly subject to loss and to, um, to pain. And his reputation seemed to be in tatters sometimes. You know, I mean, it, it rose again, and he ended up with a great reputation. But um, at times during his lifetime, it seemed like it really wasn't so great all the time. So, to emulate the Buddha, know, would be to know that these conditions are going to happen to us too, but maybe, maybe we can care a little bit less. Maybe we can hold these things in a slightly different way with a different kind of perspective. Because of course, of course, our natural inclination, you know, all of us, our natural inclination is to only want there to be praise and gain and pleasure and fame, or some degree of, of, you know. (laughs) And we, we don't want to experience blame and loss and pain and disrepute. I mean, who does? And this is totally human. It's not as if we're supposed to now want to experience the other four. Now, this would be a very unhealthy way to go about things or to go about the path. But the thing is, is that we have all eight. And so, is it possible to relate a little bit differently? Sometimes we have the delusion that life could or should offer only the first four, only the good ones. And we may feel at times personally insulted when we have to experience the other four, that it's a personal matter. So what we want to do is to see if we can shift our relationship, change our relationship to these eight worldly dharmas, not to disregard or to scorn the natural human reaction that is likely to be there, when we do, when we disregard or scorn um, the human reaction of of not wanting to be in pain or not wanting to be blamed or you know this this and that, um, we do fall into what is known as the near enemy of equanimity. In other words, that which looks like equanimity but is not equanimity, a sense of indifference or not caring. You know, trying to push the natural human reaction away, as if, if we don't, if we ignore it, then we won't have to really feel it. But this doesn't work at all. Equanimity is really an open-hearted non-reactivity of mind. It's not a closed-hearted sense of dryness or a void. So seeing the essential emptiness of all of these eight dharmas is really really important seeing the emptiness of the positive as well as the emptiness of the negative. We're really happy to see the emptiness of the negative, but the only way we see the emptiness of the negative is as well to see the emptiness of the positive, to see that these things are out of our control and they're not a sign of poor practice. There's sort of this new age idea seems to be running around for some years now that if you do things correctly, your life is going to be great. And this is really an error of um, of discernment. You know, one one can be practicing, you know, really wonderfully, really with great earnestness, and, and really going in exactly the right direction, and things can fall apart. Now, this is out of our control. It's so po- it's so um, common to take it as a personal problem or a personal insult, or you know, like we're not doing things correctly. Um, when actually that's not the way things go at all. It just simply means that if we're practicing, everything on some level will be workable. Not that things won't happen, not that things won't fall apart, but that everything can be worked with, and this is a huge strength in our life. If we can work with things in any kind of a way, you know, with just a, a tiny bit of... of. Um, ability of capacity or with a great deal. Uh, It it just is a, a huge difference in life to be able to work with the inner and outer circumstances. What we're interested in is moving from this is happening to me to this is happening to all beings. Seeing if we can relate to our experiences without reacting to our experiences. When we're reactive, we're caught in some way. We're caught in an unwise relationship with what it is that's happening. When we're relating, we're engaged in a wise relationship with what's happening. We're aware of the impersonal, innate, the impersonal nature of what's happening, and we're able to act in more skillful ways. Yeah. When we're lost in reactivity, oftentimes we compound whatever problem we're facing. When we're a little bit more apt to remember, to respond, or to relate, instead of to react. All sorts of creative ideas come through that we might find to be much more wise and compassionate than the reactive ways that we might act out of blindness. So we're engaged in a wise relationship that leaves us open to a variety of different options that we might not have thought about if we were lost in reactivity. Practicing being mindful, one definition of mindfulness means to stop or to pause. It gives us a moment to breathe before kind of jumping in uh, to the ocean. It gives us a moment to breathe to see, do we want to jump in? Is this really a a good place to be? Is this going to really bring joy, or is it just going to compound the problem? So it gives us that chance to stop and to see what it is that we really want to nourish in our life. Mindfulness offers us the space to respond in a more skillful way. When we can relate to the circumstances in life a little bit differently, instead of blindly reacting, we discover the freedom of not having to depend on things being a certain way. And this is great happiness already. Now, just to not be so dependent on the changing circumstances in life, outwardly as well as inwardly, for there to be more of a sense of being able to embrace and accept what's happening, whatever it is that arises within, whatever the circumstances are, we discover an unconditioned freedom. We discover a a contentment that really can't be taken away by anybody or anything. This is, this is such a big thing. This contentment that really can't be um, taken away. So, so much of everything can be taken away from us. But the kind of contentment that we discover in practice, in being mindful, in cultivating equanimity cannot be taken away. just to say a little bit about the dharmas themselves. They're obviously in pairs. They go together. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, and fame and disrepute or slander. The first one, praise and blame, is the same as approval or disapproval. You know, those times in our life when somebody is approving of us or praising us And those times in our life when we're being blamed, when we're being blamed um, or disapproved of. We need to be aware of our dependence on being praised, if that's so for you. And we need to be aware of our aversion to being blamed, our reaction to being blamed. Because we can act out of the very best of intentions or the very worst of intentions, and sometimes it doesn't matter. I don't mean that it doesn't matter karmically or it doesn't matter to us or it doesn't matter to the world. But people are still going to praise us and blame us according to their opinions. And we know what we do inside, right, in terms of praising and blaming ourselves and others. I mean, it's not so stable of a process. So when we find ourselves subject to other people's opinions, other people's praise and blame, it's such a fragile place to stand. It's such an unstable place to rest. Mm-hmm. A stable place to rest is in the recognition that, of course, it feels bad to be blamed. Nobody wants to be blamed. Of course, there's maybe a little buzz or you know, warmth when we're being praised. It's a nice thing to offer a compliment to somebody. And at the same time, to recognize, to be aware of our reaction is what allows us to find a freedom within these two Opposite forces allows us to stay steady so that we're not moving out of balance, moving towards trying to get more and more praised and trying to avoid or being crushed by those times when we find ourselves blamed. The Buddha said that you can do this and that and this and that and you'll still be praised or blamed. He said that people blame, one, for being silent, They blame one for talking too much, and they blame one for talking too little. The world always finds a way to praise and a way to blame. It always has, and it always will. I think that's interesting. It always has, and it always will. And I want to remind you again that the Buddha experienced all eight of these conditions. So it might be getting more and more clear that we can't expect the conditions to go away, and we can free ourselves in the midst of these conditions. This is what is really possible. Some people try to act invisibly so they won't get praised or blamed. You know, sometimes we do that. We try to act as if we're not a person or, you know, we try to move in certain ways so people won't recognize us, hoping that we won't get blamed. And it um, doesn't really work. It actually doesn't really work. Each one of us has a place on this earth, and each one of us has to take our proper place on this wor- on this earth. So it doesn't really work. Looking at, um, I, was, I was just going to make one other comment about this, which is that you know when we look at somebody like Hitler, he was praised. He was actually greatly praised. And he was blamed, too, big time, but he was praised. And then we look at somebody like, the, like Mother Teresa, and Mother Teresa was blamed in her lifetime. I remember somebody telling me, I never watched this movie, but someone made a movie called A Skeptical Look at Mother Teresa. <laughs> I thought this was just—I mean, you know, on some level, humorous because I'm sure she was freer from, you know, being subject to such suffering about it. But appalling, you know, on another level, appalling. <laughs> so who is who is who is free from this when we when we look at these two examples? So to move on to the um, other dimension of gain and loss, and sometimes this is known as success and failure. Um, So much we judge our experiences in life as being good or bad. And so many times our assessment of what is success and what is failure and what is gain and what is loss is based on cultural conventions, not based on what we think. Not based on what is wise or what is compassionate, but based on cultural conditions, conventions. Not based on what is meaningful, but based on the temporary, based on that which comes and goes, which seems important, but maybe is not. You know, when we think about our own death, when we think about, when we reflect on our own death, this inevitability of death, probably... You know, at the moment of dying, we're not going to think, how was my job you know, dur- during this life? We're probably not going to be thinking, oh, you know, I did this job and I did this career and I made this much money and I did, you know, probably not. Probably we're going to be thinking more along the lines of how much have I loved, Yeah, You know, how much have I loved in this lifetime? And that is what is going to be sustaining at that time. That is what is going to be nourishing at that time, this development of qualities. We're going to recognize that the uh, quality of consciousness in the present moment is what matters most, the qualities of heart that we're cultivating right now. Not what we've done, not how successful we've been, not how much of a failure we think we've been, but that which can't be seen, that which radiates, that which may not even be acknowledged, but that which we know inside ourselves. That, that inner warmth, that inner love, that inner calm and spaciousness. This is what's going to matter to us. What's going to matter to us is, is, um, is letting go of judgment. Yeah? I mean, letting go of judging ourselves and letting go of judging others. And this is probably what's going to matter most to us. This is just another way of saying, how much have I loved? We have very strong models of success in our culture, of what success means, and so it's really easy to get overly involved in what these models are. Really, in in our practice, we're discovering a freedom from models entirely. We're discovering a freedom from our inner models, and we're discovering a freedom from conventional models as well. We're discovering an inner refuge that is free from conditions. You know, it's so interesting to reflect on this arena of gain and loss because sometimes if we f- reflect on the past and we think about a great loss that we've had in our life, we might notice that after some time has passed, we think about it in a different way. You know, we think about it in a slightly different way or in a, 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 a much different way. We might think, oh, my goodness, thank, thank goodness this happened because it really was a wake-up call. It's really what... what I needed to really see things in a really different way. You know, with with really difficult experiences, of course it can take years and years before we're able to look at it in this way. But I think probably all of us with some experiences notice that the time of the great loss is really, really different than some years after on how we look at it afterwards when we see what has, has opened up because of it. And you know, sometimes it's just the experience of humility that's opened up because of having experienced loss, and that's no small thing. Now, that's a huge thing. We get in trouble because of our lack of humility. And so just the gift of humility is a huge thing. Mm. Sometimes as well with something like a big gain, you know, what we think is really a, a good thing or a, a big gain in our life, some years later, we look at it in a bit of a different way. It's not as important to us. Um, it's not as meaningful for us as we thought it might be. You know, in all sorts of situations, this sometimes is true. That which seems so great that we told everybody about, that we were thrilled about, that we had an inner thrill about, then you know, life changes and we're not quite as excited about it as we were. And our criteria of what is gain and what is loss tends to change too as we grow as we develop in the spiritual path it's said that loss is gain and gain is loss loss is gain and gain is loss and one reason that this is true is because in practice if one thinks that one has gained anything it's the end of your practice you know it's a problem it's definitely a big problem to think that you've gained anything Um, Certainly qualities of heart are developed and are nurtured and occur more and more frequently, but to think that I am, you know, practicing really well or I am compassionate or I am wise, next thing that's going to happen is, is, you know, exactly that situation that is going to point out one's lack of compassion or one's one's lack of wisdom. And the reason why the opposite is true, that um, gain is loss, or let me see, loss is gain, whichever. Figure that out on your own. <laughs> 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 if you lose something, if you lose something such as greed, hatred, and delusion, this is gain. Huh? It's gain to lose um, the calaisas. It's, it's gain to actually lose these buddies that we've had with us all this time. Uh, clinging and aversion, and you know, whatever it might be. This is a great gain in life, in actuality. The next one is pleasure and pain. And I won't say too much about this because Michael spoke about it last night. But the sense of comfort and discomfort, and looking at our sometimes what can be our over attachment to being comfort to, to comfort. Sometimes our over attachment to comfort can really greatly limit us in terms of what we really want in life, in terms of our true aspirations. And so it's just interesting to notice if there is an overattachment to always having to be comfortable and seeing if more and more we can tolerate those times of discomfort that we don't have any choice about. Being on retreat is a great situation to see if we can open and tolerate and embrace more and more discomfort because our world gets bigger if we're able to tolerate more of life. It's actually a great inner spaciousness that arises when we're able to tolerate more and more of life. I think as well, recognizing that there's nothing wrong with pleasure. Now, well, pleasure is pleasure. Pleasure is what it is. It's pleasurable. And at the same time, it's limited. Now, it really is just what it is. the The, the thing about pleasure is no problem with it it's just what it is and it's going to come to an end the unfortunate thing about pleasure is that it will it will end you know it is temporary so can we come to a different relationship with pleasure so that we're not trying to get more out of it than it can offer us now it can offer us something certainly in the moment great wonderful no problem great to be comfortable And if we're trying to get more out of it than it can offer, meaning a lasting source of happiness, we're always going to be disappointed because it's just not nature. It's just not the way things are. Coming to a different relationship with pleasure and pain does allow us an enormous inner comfort with discomfort. Moving to fame and slander or status and obscurity, um, or um, being acknowledged and being ignored. I think you can kind of put this into this too. You know, those times when we're acknowledged for our efforts and for something that's that we've done that's really good or whatever. When we're seen, when we're visible to others, those times, you know, which are which are quite wonderful. And then those times when we're not. You know, those times when We're doing really well. We've done something really good, and nobody notices. Nobody sees it at all. And can there be a different relationship so that we're not quite, again, as attached or dependent on being recognized or acknowledged? Can the acknowledgement come from within? Can the recognition come from within? And of course, this is what happens when we're willing to be awake to ourselves from moment to moment. There is an inner acknowledgement. Now, this is, this is such an uh, interesting thing because children definitely do need to be acknowledged. There is no doubt about it. They need to be seen for what they're doing that's good. They need to be nurtured in this way. And you can't, to a child, say it doesn't matter, you know, whether your good efforts are being seen or not seen. Just get off it already. Grow up, you know. But as adults, I think we can't be children. I think I think we can 't kind of go back and try to get that if we haven 't gotten it. I think that we have to instead take this next step of seeing if we can give it to ourselves of seeing if we can be mindful, awake to our own life, and to see if indeed this is true in practice in life so let me um let me end with a quote. Um, It actually has to do with this last aspect of fame and disrepute. If a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his own skiff, even though he be a bad-tempered man, he will not become very angry. But if he sees a man in the boat, he will shout at him to stare clear. If the shout is not heard, he will shout again and yet again and begin cursing and all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet, if that boat were empty, he would not be shouting and not be angry. If you can empty your own boat, crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you, no one will seek to harm you. The straight tree is the first to be cut down. The spring of clear water is the first to be drained dry. If you wish to improve your wisdom and shame the ignorant, to cultivate your character and outshine others, A light will shine around you as if you had swallowed the sun and the moon. You will not avoid calamity. A wise man has said, he who is content with himself has done a worthless work. Achievement is the beginning of failure. Fame is the beginning of disgrace. Who can free himself from achievement and from fame? Descend and be lost amid the masses of people. He will flow like the Tao, unseen. He will go about like life itself, with no name and no home. Simple is he without distinction. To all appearances he is a fool. His steps leave no trace. He has no power. He achieves nothing, has no reputation. Since he judges no one, no one judges him. Such is the perfect man. His boat is empty. Hey, let's just take a moment or two and sit. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have understanding of heart. May all beings develop in equanimity.